0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: My aim is to explain how and why a certain notion of the self has come to dominate the culture of the West. Why this self finds its most obvious manifestation in the transformation of sexual mores, and what the wider implications of this transformation are and may well be in the future. So writes Carl Truman in the introduction to his 2020 book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. This is a book the progressives should read in order to better understand how social conservatives perceive the massive societal changes, particularly in the realm of sexual politics and identity of the last 60 years or so. It is a book that social conservatives, particularly Christian ones, should read so as to understand the sexual revolution, and in particular, the normalization of transgenderism. Truman argues that transgenderism cannot be properly understood without a grasp of a centuries-long transformation in how people in Western societies came to understand the nature of human selfhood. Truman charts the rise of expressive individualism and how that worldview affects nearly every niche of our lives. He writes... The sexual revolution does not simply represent a growth in the routine transgression of traditional sexual codes or even a modest expansion of the boundaries of what is and is not acceptable sexual behavior. Rather, it involves the abolition of such codes in their entirety. More than that, it has come in certain areas, such as that of homosexuality, to require the positive repudiation of traditional sexual mores to the point where belief in or maintenance of such traditional views has come, has come to be seen as ridiculous, and even a sign of serious mental or moral deficiency. Truman elucidates in-depth the ideas of three philosophers of the modern condition, Philip Reif, Charles Taylor, and Alistair MacIntyre. He traces as well the impact on our own times of a range of thinkers and movements, including Rousseau, Wilhelm Reich, Herbert Marcuse, the Romantics, Nietzsche, Marx, Darwin, Freud, Surrealism... Hugh Hefner, Anthony Kennedy, Peter Singer, Adrian Rich, Truth Butler, and LGBTQ activists. Whatever your political or religious views, this book will endow you with an understanding of the origins of current and future debates about free speech and religious liberty. And to judge the merits of the arguments of both sides with humanity. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I'm one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Carl Truman, the author of the 2020 book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. Thank you for joining us today, Carl.
0: It's great to be here, Hope. Thanks for having me on.
1: I'm delighted. Your book is getting a lot of buzz, especially in conservative circles, but elsewhere as well, which is is very wonderful because it's a magnificent book. It's a magnum opus. (laughs) First of all, I'd like to focus on several of the phrases in the title of your book. This will take some time because some of the phrases in the title are key to several sections of your book and are, are crucial to understanding them. Let's start with the term, the modern self, and let's get into the nitty-gritty. What do you mean by modern and what do you mean by self? You mentioned your grandfather in the book. Was his view of the self all that different from that of view of your children or your children? Did your grandfather and those of his generation even think about the self as many people do today? When did modern kick in? I think particularly of the famous quote from Virginia Woolf, for instance, for instance to wit, on or about December 1910, human character changed. Where does Wolf's statement fall in your timetable of change? And I would point out, too, that she herself in her fiction and many of her writings was a gender bender par excellence. So have at it.
0: Yes, well, the obviously the the timing of the arrival of the modern could be a matter of debate partly because it arrives earlier for the intellectual elites than it does for the ordinary man or woman in the street uh, you're pointing to uh, Virginia Woolf in the early 20th century and and Woolf was certainly a pioneer of, of modernist literature and as you uh, mentioned uh, also a, a pioneer of of what I would describe as the modern self, the the idea of, of human nature human beings as, as things Things that can effectively invent themselves. We're able to, to transgress boundaries, uh, construct ourselves in, in ways that we choose. Took a long time for that idea to percolate down to, to all levels of society. So, you know, think about my granddad. My granddad died just about 30 years ago. Certainly, he was not a man of the modern age as Wolf was. My granddad was an ordinary working man and operated with very traditional categories. He was actually a lifelong socialist, but his social and cultural categories would have been very conservative and very static. But modernity. Is now pervasive. Uh, I think all of us are subject to the kind of ideas, the kind of thinking that Virginia Woolf uh, epitomised, as you say, just uh, over a uh, hundred years ago. So when I talk about the modern, I'm really talking about the contemporary, the way most people in the West think about themselves today. The self, there is a sense in which we we use the self quite often in, in very common sense ways. I, I'm aware that I'm not Hope Lehman. You're aware that you're not me. Uh, we're both aware that we're not Donald Trump or Joe Biden. We have a, a sense of self-consciousness where that we understand we have an individuality that marks us off from everybody else. That's a sort of common sense way of understanding the self, and it's not the way I'm using it in this book. In the book, the notion of the self, the idea i 'm trying to 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 sort of conceptualize is what we think the purpose of our lives is, where we find our fulfillment, how we understand ourselves in relation to the rest of the world, what is it that really provides me with my real identity uh, an example you know I might draw a contrast with my grandfather at this point and say my, my grandfather's identity was very much rooted in. Uh, the fact that he was a member of a trade union, he worked in a factory, he was able to provide uh, food and shelter and clothing for his family through the money he earned. Uh, for him, the happy life was the life where he was able to earn enough money to meet his obligations to others. For me, uh, the happy life is one where I get a sense of real psychological satisfaction out of the work that I do. And in the contrast there, you see a, a change in the notion of the self. My granddad self was fitting himself into the outward structures of society, conforming himself to the demands that society placed upon him. For me, selfhood is, is a much more internalized thing, a much more internal thing. It's a much more psychologically oriented thing. So th- that was the, what I'm getting at in the self. What is it that makes us tick? How do we think of ourselves in relation to the purpose, meaning of life, other people, etc.?
1: Well, now that we've addressed the concept of self, let's turn to the concept of expressive individualism. And I would just point out for listeners that that term and concept provides the framework of another notable book, which is being paired with yours at this time, as two books very similar in their uh, discussion of expressive individualism. And that book is from the bioethicist, bioethicist O. Carter Sneed, and his book from Harvard University Press is entitled, What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics and reading his book, which I just did, and yours in tandem is a powerful combo, Carl, I'd say, that they're really, both of them are just superb. Could you please tell us what expressive individualism is and why did you choose to focus on it as a concept... For, that social conservatives in particular need to grapple with rather than, say, secular humanism or social justice?
0: Yeah, good question. First of all, on Carter's book, I, I read it uh, about two weeks ago, and it, I, it was immensely, I wouldn't say gratifying, it was immensely re- relieving to find somebody else who was sort of tracking along the same lines that I was. There's nothing like uh, somebody else doing the same sort of thing that, that helps to confirm that, yeah, I'm heading in the, the right sort of direction. Uh, expressive individualism, its it's a term, used by the philosopher Charles Taylor. It's also used in the later work of uh, Alistair MacIntyre. Uh, it's used most famously, perhaps, in the work of Robert Bellah, Habits of the Heart in the mid-1980s. And that's the notion that uh, the, the self is, is is most authentic when we are able to act outwardly on that which we feel inwardly. Uh, we express ourselves by by moving that which we, we feel inwardly into the, the public sphere So that was the the sort of the notion of the self that I wanted to latch onto and it, it really makes the individual in, in some sense the most basic element Of society, and when you think about how we think about uh, society today, we we tend to think of it as as not a natural thing, but a thing that is formed by individuals contracting together in some form. If you'd been born in the Middle Ages, you'd have been born, let's say, in Europe, into an agrarian feudal society, and you would have assumed that the way to discover your identity was to to work out the natural structure of the world the feudal structure of the world and fit yourself into it we don't think that way anymore we tend to think of ourselves as as sovereign individuals who contract with others uh, so there's a kind of uh, uh, there's both an internal dimension to this that that my inner life is the most basic element of who i am and a, a potentially adversarial relationship to other people as well other people are those with whom i have to contract a relationship in some way. So that's what I was trying to get at with expressive individualism. Why I chose it over secular humanism is I I think that it's, it's a much broader category, Particularly when you know my own constituency is sort of broadly Christian and, and broadly conservative, there can be a tendency in, in that constituency to to demonize those who disagree with us and, and dismiss them as oh that's secular humanism or or oh, that's this or oh, that's that. The thing about expressive individualism is we're all complicit in it. Yeah, in, in a sense, one might say, well, somebody chooses to be a secular humanist in the way that Truman chooses. To be religious, the most basic thing uh, 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 in in that situation is we're both doing the choosing. We're both making ourselves authentic in our own way. So, I chose the category because one of the points I wanted to make in the book is that the issue of expressive individualism, the issue of the modern self, is not a them and us; it's all of us. We choose different routes. We manifest our selfhood in different ways. But at root, we're all operating with the same kind of model that I choose. I choose who I am. So expressive individualism was really a way of trying to capture a much broader category than the, the typical ones that are used in, say, the culture wars, and a way of, of making us all aware that we're kind of complicit in this same uh, phenomenon right from the word go. Hmm. Well,
1: that's helpful. Now another term, another uh, phrase from your title of your book, that's cultural amnesia, and again, why why amnesia as opposed to say iconoclasm or animus? Because so much of it is. Not so much I don't want to remember as I want to destroy. I was just interested in your use of the term amnesia.
0: Yes, so, and, and certainly, I, I guess I could have used those terms as well. When I use the term cultural amnesia, and I was actually just teaching a class this morning on this, the students I said I'm, I'm not using amnesia in the sense necessarily of uh, of just hey, I, I completely forgot about that. I am thinking more in terms of a cultural attitude, a deliberate forgetting or a deliberate rejection, a deliberate repudiation of the importance of the past for the present. So Iconoclasm would have worked just as well. Uh, There's a limit to how long a subtitle can be, of course. Got to fit it on the cover of a book, but Iconoclasm would have worked just as well. Although Iconoclasm, captures a, an intentionality that that often isn't there for most people. It's not that we've repudiated the past, it's that we never think about the past, we've never been taught about the past, we've never bothered to ask the question as to whether the past has anything uh, to teach us. So I, I suppose I was trying to capture a little bit of the uh, again, you have the activists through the iconoclasts and you have the vast majority of the rest of us who simply don't know or don't care and I was trying to to touch that. Again, going back to expressive individualism, if you think that the most basic thing about you is what goes on inside your head, then you'll have a tendency to think that the most uncorrupted form of you is the you that existed before society got you and forced you to conform to its historical conventions. So expressive individualism has a kind of anti-historical bent built into it. And that's again what I wanted to capture with that term cultural amnesia was these things are connected. It's not we have cultural amnesia over here and expressive individualism over there. They're actually intimately connected.
1: Well now we got to the final juiciest phrase in the title and that's the sexual revolution. And I it's interesting that you used sexual revolution singular, because in a way haven't there been several? For example there was the free love movement among the Bohemians of Greenwich Village circa 1915 and sexual escapades of the Bloomsbury set, which you talk about a little in the book. And you uh, went through a bit. Of, and we also in America, we went through the, the flappers, which was a sort of proto sexual liberation of young women. And there were in the 1950s, there were steamy figures such as Marlon Brando and, of course, the hippies in the 1960s and the 1970s the rise of sexual identity politics in the form of people like Harvey Milk. But you seem particularly concerned about transgenderism. Could you tell us why?
0: Um, Well, first of all, the term the sexual revolution, uh, I'm really using it in a a broad way to, to refer to not simply, I think in the book I say, not simply the the routine transgression of sexual codes that's always gone on. I mean, the thing about the Bloomsbury group was they knew what the standard sexual codes of Victorian slash Edwardian England were, and they, they chose to transgress them. Uh, there's always been transgression of whatever the established sexual codes are. Uh, the sexual revolution, as I use the term, is not so much about the the transgressing of boundaries, as it is about the abolition of boundaries in their entirety, and I'm really focused in the book on on what emerges in the fifties and then explodes in the sixties, and, and in which we live in we live in the aftermath of, and that's the the idea that traditional sexual codes, monogamous heterosexual marriage, uh, heterosexual heterosexuality as normative, those kind of things. Uh, are seen as as repressive, again, as as repressive of that expressive person that we all are. Um, Therefore, we have this coming together of uh, the the transgression of sexual codes with the notion of political liberation. And uh, whatever else the uh, Bloomsbury group were, they weren't revolutionary figures in a sort of massive social sense. They were a bunch of upper-class English people who enjoyed breaking the rules, When we get to the 60s, we see emerging a much more comprehensive understanding of these rules are bad, and they're bad for everyone, and we need to get rid of them if we're going to facilitate political freedom and political liberation. And transgenderism fits uh, into that, I think, because in some senses, transgenderism is, I won't say it's breaking the last taboo, because there are always more taboos to break, but transgenderism represents... Uh, a rebellion, uh, in some ways, the latest rebellion against any form of external authority, even the authority of the body, is is being repudiated at this point. And you know, for my granddad, if he'd understood these phrases, it would have been obvious to him that the the basic sexual codes of of, of you know, normative heterosexuality were engraved into the bodies of men and women. Now that's questioned. Now that's denied. So transgenderism is, I would say, uh, a kind of the latest and most radical iteration of uh, a a sexualized notion of the expressive, expressive individual.
1: Yeah, I remember seeing a cover story about maybe ten years ago. Now I was just idly look. I I get the New Republic, and uh, it was a cover story about the, the. This is the new civil rights movement or something. It had a picture of a of a person. I couldn't tell what sex the person was. And I thought, what is this? And then, of course, it started, as you say, it started percolating through the culture. And, and uh, that was a, cl- a classic case of the elite calling the shots on what what's going to happen. And, uh, I just want to read on the subject of transgenderism. You, you write in the book about the, 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 the use of language that you use in the book. And you write, I am aware that LGBTQ plus people object to the term transgenderism as indicating a denial of the reality of transgender people and therefore as a pejorative term. Nonetheless, I use it in this book to point out to, point to the underlying philosophical assumptions that must be regarded as correct if a person's claim to be transgender is to be seen as coherent. If it's legitimate for LGBTQ plus theorists and advocates to use terms such as cisgenderism to refer to the ideology that underlies opposition to the transgender movement, then it is also legitimate to use transgenderism to refer to the ideology that underpins it. And when, what terms do they, do they prefer if they don't want transgenderism? I, and and is, is it part of their program to force others to use their terminology? Because I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it's, you can't win kind of thing. It's like, I didn't know that was offensive to you. I'm sorry. And then, then, I, then you're in the, immediately put in the position of having to apologize because you're not using what they're demanding, correct?
0: Yes. And, and I mean, the history of the term transgenderism actually reflects that because originally it was considered by the transgender community to be a perfectly acceptable way mm. of, uh, of of referring exactly, to, to yeah. the issue. Uh, uh, words, as, as Amy Coney Barrett discovered recently, yes, words, words that were acceptable yesterday or even this morning can very quickly become pejorative and unacceptable. So uh, I used- I wanted t-
1: to ask you about that. Could you address that? The fact that she used the term Preferences, and that was immediately leapt upon by Maisie Hirono of Hawaii as, oh no, that's outdated, and so forth. And and then other people said, well, actually, just a year or two ago, it was perfectly
0: acceptable. Just a month or two ago. I think uh, yeah. Webster's dictionary changed it to a pejorative that day, that, I believe.
1: That was really chilling. Um, that was fascinating um, that the, the, the dictionary overnight, literally overnight almost, yeah. was, was changed.
0: And I was going to say the interesting thing about that as well, just as an aside, is it's a sort of gotcha thing. It's a little bit like these people having their careers destroyed because they've used a word they shouldn't have used on Twitter. Uh, Typically, people know that when when people mistakenly use a word like that, it's not because they're ideologically committed to racism or sexism or something like that. It's a slip. And uh, when Amy Coney Barrett was, was pilloried then, to me, that looks like a power play. That's you know nobody's accusing her of being this that or the other simply on the basis of that one word. So it's it's an interesting uh, example of how in this world where everything is sort of floating now, uh, words can be transformed and weaponized very 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 quickly.
1: Well, a uh, I, I quote again from your book on the same subject: you say. Emphasis on emphasis on what we might call the right to psychological happiness of the individual will also have some practical, obvious practical effects. For example, language will become much more contested than in the past because words that cause psychological harm will become problematic and will need to be policed and and suppressed. To use pejorative racial or sexual epithets ceases to be a trivial matter; instead, it becomes an extremely serious act of oppression. And I think what's interesting is, in a way. Amy Coney Barrett won that argument because she said, "Okay, here's your apology. Can we move on?" And then she now she's on the Supreme Court, and it was it was just kind of a a, a blip, really. people, I think that there wasn't outrage except in very, in certain elite circles and in the you know the LGBTQ plus press and so forth. But anyway. But um, uh, speaking of the need to conform to language dictates, uh, speaking of the subject of the transgender community and language, I noticed that when discussing the person known as Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner, you refer to this person throughout as he. Was that a bit of defiance on your part to the social policing that we've been discussing? Or is it just you? you what, why was that? Do you feel that, that he is Bruce and still, even though he's called, you see, I'm tripping over the whole issue because yeah, we yeah. have with pronouns,
0: yeah, I think actually the 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 reference uh, the references to to Bruce slash Caitlin Jenner were, were generally when it was Bruce talking about his his future transition. Uh, I tried to be careful on that point because you know while I don't want my language policed, uh, I don't want to cause unnecessary offence. I, I want people to read the book and try to to grapple with the argument rather than with the aesthetics uh, of the presentation of the argument, so to speak. So I've tried on the whole. To be careful on that front. Um, But I would say that uh, the bottom line is, um, again, it goes down to how you construct the relationship between sex and gender, but but Caitlyn Jenner continues to have XY chromosomes. Uh, Caitlyn Jenner, uh, without wanting to get too crude about it, doesn't menstruate. Caitlyn Jenner cannot conceive a child. all of these things that would typically be regarded as, as rather essential to to being a woman. So while I want to be careful on, on, on that issue and not cause unnecessary offense, uh, I' am very wary of the radical constructionism that gender theory uh, posits and builds itself upon. JK. Rowling of course got into serious trouble on precisely that point just a month or two ago.
1: Yeah, she's been very courageous in just saying, um, defending, as as you discussed in the book, and we'll discuss later in the interview about Jermaine Greer, too, about I don't want other people to tell me what womanhood is. I don't want men to tell me what womanhood is. And I think that's, she's, and she's very um, privileged in, I mean, again, that's, I, I don't like to use the politically correct language, but she's lucky in that she has a position of, of, of power, even though she comes from her own background that she's not a person of power. She earned her power through her talent rather than, than privilege, but, um, speak, but sticking with the subject of, of sports, uh, and, and since we're just talking about Jenner is, do you think that, that the fact that, that the Achilles heel of the transgenderism might be what it's doing to women's sports after all, many parents who are who consider themselves liberal are also very proud of their daughters. Who are you know on the soccer field and uh, basketball court and so forth? Are such parents going to start to bridle when biological boys, boy children who are bi- basically biologically boys, demand the right to compete as girls or women's sports, which are kind of an abeyance right now during the pandemic, going to be an area where transgenderism experiences first pushback and maybe even rollback? Or is it just a matter of let's face it that that women it's going to be a, a, a transgender. Field and that's that there is really no women's sports per se. I mean, how does that affect the Olympics and so forth?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think if if you push the the logic that's being pushed in other areas uh, in in sports, then you're really looking at the at the death of women's sports. That any sport that involves speed. Strength or stamina, up to a certain point. I, I think it's. I am correct. I used to. I used to run marathons. Ran an ultra marathon. I think when you get beyond fifty miles, the difference between men and women is is negligible, if not non-existent. So, ultra running might continue, but I am. I am the, the advisor at Grove City College to the the women's rugby team, uh, and I would be delinquent if I allowed the women's rugby team to take the field against a men's rugby team. Uh, the, it would be physically very, very dangerous for the women in the rugby team to play a full 15 from a male rugby team. One of my uh, women the other week had trained with the men and she she came to me the day and she said, Dr. Truman... Wow, those, those guys just hit so hard. And I, I actually said to her, You need to be careful because you could get serious, you know, you could be put in a wheelchair in a game of rugby if, you, if you're hit too hard. So I would say, you know, I think there are numerous things that the transgender movement is going to find itself coming up against. And certainly, women's sports is perhaps uh, the one that, that most obviously affects most people at this point. Uh, because it's going to be dangerous for, for women to play some sports up against men.
1: And they will be deprived of scholarships, and they'll, thus they'll be deprived of college educations that they might have otherwise had. And it's, it's sort of a financial issue as well.
0: Yes, it's, um, it has the, serious implications.
1: On the Continuing with transgenderism, uh, I think I disagree with you a little bit. You, re, you seem to regard it more as an unstoppable force. And I wonder—is it really? Because to me, it seems—is a movement so defend so dependent on artificial aids such as hormone injection, radical forms of surgery, sustainable? Uh, is actually, it, because it's, because homosexuality yeah. is—you don't have to have a major change in pharmacologically or surgically to be a homosexual, man, for example.
0: No, and and I think uh, I I do say in the book I think you know gay marriage has come and it's it's not shattered civilization as we know it. It's not really. Uh, um, uh, threatened most people's way of life in any significant way. It, it's sort of been accommodated to uh, uh, American culture. I do think transgenderism is different, and I actually I, I I am more optimistic that that the tide may change on this one because for various there are various things about it that I think make it unsustainable in the long run. But one of them is one could certainly envisage a situation in 20, 30, 40 years time when children who have been uh, given hormone therapy uh, before puberty because they were confused about their gender uh, in 30, 40 years time uh, decide to sue their parents, sue the doctors and sue the insurance companies who who underwrote the project. Uh, And I think, you know, One of the things that's always struck me about America as an an outsider coming to America is money really does talk in America. And once the insurance companies are getting clobbered by uh, legal settlements, then you can expect attitudes to change on these things. So I actually think that transgenderism could well be a step too far in in, in the sexual revolution because it's taking on too many opponents and is vulnerable, I think, uh, on, on that front. Whether it will happen, I don't know. And, and, and if the scenario I articulated does happen, it will only happen after terrible human suffering, because that's typically what lies behind these kind of lawsuits. So it's, it's not a good scenario from that perspective. But I do wonder, long term, if in its current form it is sustainable.
1: Well, also too, we're seeing examples of it, sort of harbingers of of the lawsuits to come, in, in the fact that some of the East German athletes who are now forty or fifty years old, that were forced by their government to take steroids and hormones and so forth, um, are now, you know, riddled with difficulties, and some of them just change their gender entirely because it was so hopeless to be to be a woman with that level of of chemical <laughs> ingestion. Yeah. It's, it's tra- But I I wanted to ask you, do you think that the medical establishment Let's talk about the ethics of it. As a medical establishment, some of it is embracing it as a new source of revenue, saying, well, I'm a surgeon and I can lop off the breasts of 13-year-olds. Or are they saying, I feel a con- I feel this is totally unethical to, to have children being either pressured by parents, which which we've seen, to change their gender, or children demanding it of parents and they feel that they're that the parents are being pressured by the children and by outside advocates for the children, even in the case of government, there's a lot of ethical minefields is happening. And also the fact that young girls, it used to be, there's even, there have been books about tomboyism was a very normal and natural phase that young girls go through. And that's become pathologized at this point that, oh, well, she's confused and she needs needs greater, this is, she's dysfunctional rather than just tomboy.
0: Yes, and that's in some ways uh, sort of going to the background of the book. It's one one of the things I wanted to get out in the book is is what are the cultural conditions or cultural assumptions that have shaped our approach to this particular phenomenon? I I do think that there's a a, a division of opinion in the in the medical establishment on this. Uh, the interviews I've listened to with uh, surgeons and those involved in gender transition, it does. I, I, I've I've yet to come across an interview where where somebody took the matter trivially or where somebody simply saw it as a way of, of, of maximizing their income. I, I do think the motivation of, of, certainly of the interviews I've heard, we would say the motivation is good. They, they genuinely want to help somebody be happy and that's a good motivation. So uh, I would certainly say that, but I but I think the problem we face is we, we're operating in a culture where certain things have become plausible that perhaps should not be plausible and are not in the best interests of, of human beings to be plausible. One of them is that that our minds, our feelings, uh, have, uh, have come to have a sort of absolute authority over our bodies. That's an unusual position to be in culturally, and one with dramatic implications far beyond the transgender issue, I think.
1: Well, one thing I think that's fascinating is that in the name of empowerment of the individual and the individual psyche that the transgender music sorry the transgender movement uses such phrases assigned at birth versus recognized at birth so there but but rather than empowering the individual the transgender movement is actually ceding an immense amount of power to medical providers for example as a woman i found what you write here quite appalling you write being a woman is now something that can be produced by a technique, literally prescribed by a doctor. And I think my my gender is prescribed by a doctor. That's medicalizing my my identity as a as a as a heterosexual woman. And anyone, and then anyone who calls attention to this impact on par- their parents again are pressurized pressured to recognize the the child's. And this is like sometimes eight year old child children. Yes, I I'd, I'd like to ask. Um, have you ex- excuse me. <coughs> The the journalist Abigail Schreier in her book Irreversible Damage: The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters is experiencing major sexi- um sorry censorship, and have you experienced anything like that so far?
0: No, I'm probably not that important, sir. <laughs> Maybe this podcast will get me censored, but uh, but no, I've I've not experienced uh, anything quite like that thus far. Um, partly, I think, because my book is it's not written as a polemic; it's more of a description of okay, how do we get here? Obviously, <laughs> I have personal convictions about the the state of play at the moment but my primary concern in the book was simply to explain how culture has come to authorize the mind over the body uh those 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 kind of things so i am probably too small a fry to to have been cancelled or censored (laughs) just, just yet
1: well, well, we'll we'll see as the book takes off. I'll we'll see. You might have to have a have a strategist plan B when you when you get some hate mail. And hate mail is the ultimate compliment, right? But I wanted to ask you again about the language of you use the term "living a lie." And one of the things that struck me about that is again you were talking about the identity. This is my this is who I am, and you must recognize me. But there's also the reverse. If someone says you must recognize me. I am living a lie say, well, what about the lie that you're imposing on me that I am supposed to call you a man when you're obviously a woman? And that's forcing me to lie, which is Orwellian and deeply, dis- deeply creepy.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yes. I mean, there are a number of things one can say about that. First of all, the language of, you know, the, the Bruce slash Caitlin Jenny use, you know, I'm living a lie as Bruce. I can, I, I, I can be authentic and truthful when I'm Caitlin. That's, you know that's expressive individual language i was talking about earlier you know if i need to be able to live outwardly that which i feel inwardly otherwise i'm living a lie i'm inauthentic so definitely expressive individual language secondly as as you point out it it it, it creates this this odd adversarial situation between human beings uh uh, there was one anecdote, I, I drew it from the, the Boston uh, Women's uh, Health Book Collective, uh, which is the, they, they produce the sort of the, the Bible of feminism, essentially, our bodies ourselves. Uh, there was an anecdote given there where there's a, a woman who's a lesbian and she's been living with her partner for 10 years and her partner transitions to becoming a man, at which point the, the her friends start telling her, you're straight now. You're living with a man, so you're actually a heterosexual. You're straight. And, and it puts her in this interesting dilemma where for her to affirm her that she's a, a lesbian, which is very important to her identity, for her to affirm that is effectively to deny the identity of her partner. It's, 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 it's to demand that a partner be a woman and not the man that the partner now identifies as. On the other hand, if she affirms her partner... As as a man, she's having to deny her own identity as as a lesbian. And that's a a classic example of the kind of, an extreme example, but a good example of the kind of dilemma that you have, have highlighted. And of course, that tends then to get sort of kicked upstairs to the governmental level. So you end up with this really rather odd situation where an emphasis upon the absolute freedom of the individual to decide who they are Ends up having to be policed or enforced by the government. So you're absolutely right. You choose your identity, and you you know you want me to recognize, acknowledge that. Well, I won't do that. So you make that a criminal offense, and you get the government to force me to recognize you. The government or which my we've employer. We've seen in
1: Canada, which is fairly yeah. frightening, right? Some of the parents in Canada, you must recognize what your children demand it, of you.
0: It's it's yeah, and as I say, it, it's odd in that you have a, a sort of essentially what is a radical individual libertarianism defaulting to a kind of authoritarian uh, society at the end of the day which is which is what we're facing now um, uh, not not yet in a hard form in the United States but it's slowly but surely being enforced in the workplace and uh, Absolutely. Uh, and I mean even the way I've tried at points answering your questions here indicate that we're all trying to be careful uh, not to, not to offend, uh, and not to find ourselves in very serious trouble for, for using the wrong words.
1: Absolutely. I mean, even doing this interview, I, I, I was a little bit leery of thinking, well, you know, do I really want to put my voice, my identity on the internet discussing these highly contentious issues? But, um, but, but you have to, I mean, what do you, we, we can't, we can't be cowed into, into not discussing them. That's, that's the point. That's the powerful point of your book. And, one, another another aspect uh, related to the lesbian that you were just discussing and, and identity and so forth, and the pressures on her to to conform to these ever changing standards that you have a very interesting, I think it's either in a footnote or just quoting him, Andrew Sullivan, who's who's a renowned male homosexual activist and is very stalwart in his and one of the pioneers of the whole same sex marriage issue. and he talked about, The pressure that he or that he was saying that he felt pressured or or the idea that he had to say, I was I am equally attracted to a transgender man, which I guess is a man who is a woman. Yes. Or is it a woman who's a man?
0: It it would be a woman who's transitioned to being a man.
1: Okay, so he's supposed to. So it's a wom, So it's a former woman being a man and he, and they were telling and Solomon was saying, I'm not attracted to that person. That is totally opposite to what I am as a homosexual man. He's essentially saying,
0: he's essentially saying that person's still a woman. And that's why that would be such a controversial and offensive thing to say in some quarters.
1: Yeah. So he was saying that, that I can't even express my own sexuality and my own preferences or, or, or again, or sorry, my orientation, because that can, that I'm condemned for that by the trans trans, gender left or the transgender movement. Yes. Is there a difference between a transsexual and a trans, and transgenderism? Is it, do they prefer the term transsexual?
0: or Transgender, I think is now the, the one that's typically used. Uh, gender of course is being sexual carries with it. Biological connotations. Whereas gender is uh, detached from biology and more of a constructed category. So transgender is, is regarded as a better term because, the last thing you want to talk about when when we're talking about transgender issues is biology. You don't want to give biology any kind of authority at all.
1: Well, when, speaking of biology, and again on the subject of transgenderism, which is a huge part of the book, you you make a fascinating point again with about Jenner. You said the transgenderism perpetuates gender stereotypes of women in particular. That a lot of it, to me, is, what I find uncomfortable about it. one of the things is that they seem to equate femininity and womanhood with haircut hairstyles and you know bling and jewelry and uh tight skirts and that kind of thing it's really it's a really offensive view of what of what women are it's just it's like this male fantasy or not even male fantasy just fantasy of 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 women being sort of brainless large-breasted heavily bejeweled nincompoops I mean, you talk about the the photo spread of of, of Jenner and I think it was Vanity Fair that that was it was sort of a glossy a glossy view of women as as pots and that's that's what it is. It's not and that's what Jermaine and you talk about Jermaine Greer and and her reaction to that. I wonder if you could address that. And before you do, I'd like to talk about you used, you labeled the term terfs t e r capital, capital T-E-R-Fs, meaning short for trends. Trans exclusionary, exclusionary radical feminists is pejorative, and that kind of surprised me because to me it seems a fairly accurate representation of a perfectly reasonable position of some feminists. That is, they don't consider men who are convinced they're women to be women. You don't even have to be radical feminist or any kind of feminist to find that true. But but you you consider the word turfs to be pejorative. Could you talk about that and why yes. why?
0: Yeah, I I don't consider it to be a pejorative. I consider it to be uh, uh, an accurate uh, account of, say, where Germaine Greer is coming from. It's used as a pejorative, though. It's used as a way of trying to demonize those feminists who see transgender males, women who've transitioned to being men, as uh, essentially... um, Oh, sorry, men who've, trans- men who've transitioned to being women as essentially men who are trying to usurp or grab hold of the the sort of history of oppression and marginalization of women for, the, for their own use. It's a sort of male subversion of what it means to be female, if you like. And uh, while I would consider that to be an entirely uh, reasonable position to hold, and I think Jermaine Greer is uh, – and – uh, JK Rowling I think would fall into the same category this term turf has been coined as a way of of demonizing that position it functions if you like in some way as the as the term racist would function mm. in other discourse oh, I see. now there are, there have been attempts made to claim that no turf is just purely descriptive. We're not trying to demonise anybody by this. Well, the interesting thing is, uh, and somebody you know, correlated, it's like describing somebody as a Jew. Well, the interesting thing is, I've, I've got a lot of Jewish friends who don't mind describing themselves as Jews. Uh, I know a couple of uh, trans exclusionary ra- 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 reactionary feminists who do not like to be described as TERFs precisely because it's a term of opprobrium. It's an attempt to, to marginalize them, to, to shunt them uh, off the, the frame of uh, reasonable discussion. So yeah, it's very much a, a pejorative term.
1: Hmm. Well, it's interesting the idea that, that the way it breaks down is trans-exclusionary. Well, if you're saying I, I am a woman and I prefer not to have men call themselves women yes I do want to exclude you from the category of, of my womanhood because you're not you're not a fellow woman as far as you know it just seems like of course there have to be it, the idea that exclusionary is inherently evil instead of just being a category
0: yeah and but, again. It comes down to that sort of expressive individualism again, because the the notion of being expressive individual, it, and so he says, "I can be whoever I want to be, and and you can't tell me otherwise." That's the essence of of individual freedom in that context. And and so to exclude me, if I want to be part of your category, to exclude me from your category, that's an act of oppression. That's bigotry. You shouldn't really do that.
1: Well, I think what's hilarious about it is that it's it's an intra. Feminist or intra left internecine battle because they, they say they include the word radical, they don't include just women who are there's no there doesn't seem to be a, a, an acronym or initial initialism for women who are not neither feminist nor radical, that they're there, but they are exclusionary. But it just seems that they're 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 trying to de- and that term deep flat is perfect for what happened to Greer. I mean, here she was, this Doyenne, this famous pioneering. Pretty brilliant. I mean, for clever woman, although she's pretty foul mouthed in many ways. But you have a, an interesting um, quote from her that that one, one can't even quote because it's in in the book. You use asterisk, uh, I believe. But she talked about a, a spaniel. I could I could wear I could be floppy ears and I could put a leash around my neck, but I still wouldn't actually be a spaniel because she's just talking about you, you can't just wear diamonds and then you're suddenly a woman. It's it's, it's fascinating what's happened to her. I mean she because she's she's older now and she's just kinda given up. I think she's just basically I don't I don't have the energy for this battling anymore. That's what I read about her a couple of years ago, but 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 I guess the mantle's been taken up by JK Rowling.
0: But Yes um, I mean and, and Greer, of course, was in, in many ways the uh uh the bete noir uh 20, 30 years ago. Uh, she was the, the, the feminist par excellence in the English-speaking yeah. world. And now she's she's been marginalized by these these more radical figures who've emerged.
1: Yeah, she's a non, non-person for them, which, again, is your point about the lack of respect for what has gone before. I mean, here she wrote these books that opened up this whole field. I mean, a lot of these women wouldn't have their positions as professors if it weren't for people like Jermaine yeah. that mm-hmm. that established the whole field of feminist studies and women's studies. At this point, I just want to remind listeners that we are talking today with Carl Truman about his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. Um, You write in the book this, criticism of homosexuality is now homophobia, that of transgenderism is transphobia. The use of the term phobia is deliberate and effectively places such criticism of the new sexual culture into the realm of, irra- of the irrational and points an underlying bigotry on the parts of those who hold such views. And you go on to say this kind of thinking underlies even decisions of the Supreme Court. Could you elaborate on that in terms of the term of, th- of the Supreme Court itself marginalizing American citizens?
0: Yes. Uh, I mean, it, it really comes from the, uh, the decision in the Supreme Court, um, uh, United States v. v Windsor, which was the, the Supreme Court decision, I think in 2013, that overturned the Defense of Marriage Act. Uh, Defense of Marriage Act, signed into law by Bill Clinton in the 90s, uh, made it very clear that marriage was between one man and, and one woman. That was challenged. Uh, in uh, the, the second decade of this century by uh, a woman who'd married another woman, her partner had died, and uh, she'd married her in Canada, but was living in New York State and wanted to get the the death benefits from her partner that would normally be available to somebody who was married. And uh, at, at a point in the the process... Uh, the Obama administration decided not to uh, to pursue the the action uh, any further, uh, and therefore the the provisions of the De- uh, Defense of Marriage Act that refer to marriage as being between one man and woman effectively fell at that point. What was interesting, though, was it, was was the rationale that the court offered in that case for the decision, and that was that uh, the the only, the only reason one would maintain the idea that marriage was between one man and one woman was an issue of, uh, of what's called constitutional animus, which we might translate into a more sort of demotic form by saying, you know, irrational bigotry. In short, what the court was saying there, that there are no reasons for opposing gay marriage uh, that don't ultimately reduce to a kind of irrational hatred of gay people or an irrational bigotry against gay people. So, for example, uh, the conservative Jew, or the conservative Muslim, or the conservative Christian, who would want to argue that actually we have principled religious objections to this, the court's effectively saying, well, you you might say that, but the only reason you hold those views, or the only reason you're offering that rationale, is that deep down inside, you're actually a bigot. So, that's actually a pretty important legal ruling. I mean, it's, it's important because it paves the way for Obergefell versus Hodges 2015, which finds gay marriage are protected by the Constitution, but also because it gives you an interesting insight into how even members of the Supreme Court are thinking about uh, opposition to gay marriage. And that is that it can only be driven by a kind of irrational bigotry. So what, what, You know, it's not surprising, if you like, that in the culture we we attach phobia to the ends of these words when the Supreme Court is operating with a very similar uh, notion and model of what's going on as well.
1: Yeah, I think that people were surprised that Neil Gorsuch ruled on the Bostock ruling. It's like he's being acculturated to uh, the idea that, well, it's all we we sophisticated people of the Supreme Court extend all of these uh, we're basically ditching 2000 years of history yeah. for the, for the greater good of what's called what the cultivated class believes.
0: Yes. And the Bostock ruling is interesting because although, uh, justice Gorsuch was very careful to say, this is a narrow ruling, uh, addressing the workplace, uh, what he effectively did was was recognize the idea of gender as a constructed category. he He granted legal status to uh, the idea of transgenderism, and it's hard to believe that that the narrowness of that ruling will not stop the uh, the concept that's been legitimated there from impacting other rulings on, say, religious freedom, uh, First Amendment cases, those kind of things. So it's a very, very, uh, very, very significant ruling by 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 the Supreme Court, authored by by Justice Gorsuch this year.
1: Yeah, and the workplace is schools, and the workplace now is in the day of epidemics is the home. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, m- well, moving along from ch- transgenderism, because there's so much else in your book I'd like to discuss – you you say the book grew out of a smaller pro- projected project of on the work of Philip Reef. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes. Reif?
0: Yeah. Absolutely correctly. Yep.
1: Could you tell us about the concept of his that you found especially useful and applicable to our era? For instance, and this is a big bunch of concepts. He says the triumph of the, ser- the therapeutic psychological man, the anti culture, and death works. And I know that's a lot to handle, but he's a pretty rich source of. And also, I'd like to ask you about him. Is he recognized still? Um I mean is I mean is he is he is he is he Todd? is he a figure of no uh,
0: so forth. Uh, to answer the last question first I would say Reef is certainly known about and and discussed in, in, in various circles I think partly because his 1966 book The Triumph of the Therapeutic has proved remarkably prescient relative to many of the things that have gone on in society. I don't think he's as well known uh, and as, as, as oft read as he should be and one of the hopes is that I hope that my book will encourage others to go off and, and read some Reef because he has some very interesting saying. He's not a Christian. Reef was a secular Jewish figure, uh, a, a somewhat critical sort of disciple of Sigmund Freud. So he's not your archetypal uh, Christian conservative figure at all. He's he's an interesting person. Um, talking about the concepts that he introduced, the, the idea of the triumph of the therapeutic is is really the idea that again, flowing out of expressive individualism, the idea that we live in a world where we tend now to conceptualize happiness uh, in terms of an inner feeling of psychological well-being or uh, and uh, you know, welfare. So. He would say that that's 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 different from earlier generations. Earlier generations uh, found happiness in something external to themselves. You think of my grandfather again. My grandfather's satisfaction was found not so much in what he did day to day in his work. He was a sheet metal worker. It was very repetitive work. The satisfaction he got from his work was not a kind of warm, fuzzy psychological buzz from from banging on. Pieces of metal all day. It was from getting paid uh, a decent day's wage for an honest day's work and being able to put bread on the table, shoes on his children's feet. I, I said, for me, of course, it's it's much more that buzz I get when I teach. Yeah, that's where my happiness is. And and Reef would say that we represent two different kinds of worlds. That my world is is very much moving in the therapeutic direction, where it's my inner feelings that are the most direct and important thing. And Reef says that has an interesting impact on culture because culture then ceases to be that which trains you to conform to to its outward standards, its outward institutions. And culture becomes that which is to pander to your inner psychological needs. And he makes an interesting comment where he says, "As, as the therapeutic culture arises, you can expect two institutions to fade in importance or to plunge into crisis and two institutions to emerge as as to replace them he says what you'll find is that that traditional religion and the idea of the nation of patriotism will fade away because traditional religion and patriotism they require you to sacrifice yourself or some part of yourself for a good that is beyond you and independent of you uh, so uh, and, and we see that I think today when when you think of you know, religion is clearly in a lot of trouble in the United States and in the West in general uh, patriotism has become a very questionable virtue for many people brief uh, says as they fade away, two other institutions will will become far more prominent he says um hospitals because hospitals make you feel better they make you well and Entertainment, because entertainment makes you feel good as well. That's why it's entertainment. You know, we're recording this in the midst of COVID. It's fascinating that, that COVID has highlighted two things. One, the, the paramount importance of the medical profession in American culture. Eh, you know, they are the heroes of the day. It's not soldiers. It's, it's medical people. And the second thing is how the entertainment industry has been prioritized over church and synagogue in in the policies of lockdowns just this week uh, i noticed uh, a, sto- a new story claiming that in in california churches are under severe restrictions while strip clubs can pretty much operate as normal and and, and I, I saw that and thought that you know reef would say that's exactly what happens That's exactly what happens when the therapeutic culture arises and and individual feelings become all-important. Society ultimately reconfigures itself around that, and old institutions, church and nation, fade away. New institutions rise in importance. Those who care for the body, the medical profession, and those who entertain us, make us feel good. So that's the kind of the triumph of the therapeutic he's he's talking about. Psychological-
1: well, apropos, apropos, I was going to say apropos of your discussion about the decline of, of in the, the military, for example, and a, a, an inter- intersection of this is the case of Bradley Manning. That he not only does he betray his country, but oh well, that's he's really troubled because he's he's a transgender person, and that became the subject—not treason, not yeah. not exposing other people to danger by revealing their 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 work with the U.S. military, and that they might get assassinated as a result. It was oh well, he he really he really wants to be she, Chelsea now, and that's and we can't have him imprisoned because it's dangerous for him there, and so
0: yes, and more than be- that, notice he's a hero, yeah,
1: be- because he and betrayed he's the
0: military. <laughs> And because he's come out as as transgender, uh, he's valorized for that, which again yep. points to to the therapeutic or the, the the transformations of culture that take place in the light of the therapeutic that Philip Reeve points to.
1: One thing I'll give an example. I was looking at the the Daily Princetonian site, the website of the of the newspaper of Princeton, where you did spend some time, and I hope we'll discuss that a little bit later, but one of the things there's this young man or young person that, that says that his family is homophobic and that they're, they're, they, they don't want him in their home. I mean, it's are he's troubled at home because of the family disapproves of his, of his coming out or he's afraid to come out and so forth, but he's demanding that Princeton university provide him with emergency housing. And my reaction is, a, the infant, the, the, the fact that the boy is so infantile that he can't think, well, maybe I should emancipate myself and put myself through college and not, and because he talks in the letter, in the open letter about that, the, that he doesn't want to sacrifice the fact that his parents are paying for his education and that, A, that Princeton has to have this mission creep of providing him with housing because he can't get along with his parents. And it just seems so narcissistic and self-involved about what, what is owed to him by Princeton, Versus how he would handle himself as a, as a thinking adult and be brave and empowered and and declare to his family, this is my orientation. Yeah. I'm going to sacrifice my Ivy League education. I'll go to a state school. I'll work my way through college myself. But no, he's demanding sort of this 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 net this, this nanny state reaction. It's from everyone. It's really strange. There's no self reflection on that at all. And Princeton is 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 basically kowtowing to this boy, this young person, and saying, "Okay, well, we'll we'll make it easier for such people to have emergency housing and so forth."
0: Yeah, and that's a classic example, of reef would say, of the institution becoming uh, a therapist, essentially. we're I mean, not obviously, it's tragic when a young man finds himself to be in a position uh, of such uh, in, in such an antagonistic position towards his parents. It, it sounds mm-hmm. like a very tragic situation, but uh, it's not the institution's responsibility to to pick up the pieces. Um, uh, i always remember when i was when i was at college just it was 30 35 years ago um it was uh i was never left in any doubt and i went to you know i went to university of cambridge which is a sort of the equivalent i suppose of the ivy league but in the in the uk uh, i was never left in any doubt that uh, uh it was a privilege for me to be there and if i didn't want to be there i could leave or they could they they'd kick me out uh, there is, a, 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 again, a sea change that has taken place uh, where uh, institutions have become uh, the instruments of the individual rather, uh, and, and places where the individual can perform rather than uh, the individual finding themselves at the institution to be formed by the institution. And I think you know, what, what you're pointing to there also points to that kind of uh, pathology of the therapeutic culture.
1: It'll be interesting to see in the age of how long the pandemic goes on that you can't perform as well your identity if everybody's in a Zoom situation. You would have to really force, by the way, here I am, and I'm going to introduce something about my identity into this conversation. I suppose you could, but it just seems that there's less wardrobe involvement and fewer opportunities to demonstrate physically and that kind of thing. Yeah. I wonder if if that'll have any effect on the whole identity situation.
0: Who knows? I mean, we're in we're in unknown territory as far as uh, COVID and and all of the the virtual interactions we're engaging with.
1: Well, another another two concepts of of Reef are the anti culture and death works, and I wonder if you could discuss those.
0: Yeah, these are two closely connected concepts in in Reef that he he introduces really in his later work. Uh, the anti culture it, it, it's really rooted in his understanding of culture in general and. Reef sees culture as the means by which values, traditions, attitudes, etc. are transmitted from one generation to the next. So there's a strongly institutional dimension to that. You know, we would say you know, government institutions, or the army, or the family, or the church. There are all these established institutions that, that exist to, to pass on values to the rising generation to form people we might say uh, Reef says the interesting thing about the the, the therapeutic culture is that, that that kind of gets flipped on its head that uh, no longer is it the case that uh, these institutions are to transmit values uh, it's that they are to conform to the therapeutic needs of the people so, A good example would be, you know, think of education. Do you go to university in order to learn and be shaped and turned into a responsible adult to be put out into society to fulfill a function that will, will benefit society in general? Or do you go to college in order to have your psychological needs met to be protected from anything that might offend you or upset you to be affirmed uh, in yourself? The example you drew from Princeton just now would be a good example of the latter. And Reef would say in, in that situation, you, have a, you effectively have an anti-culture. And what he means by that is culture has become something that, that, that stands in opposition to that that's gone before. There's an iconoclasm here. Uh, if culture is the problem, if, if history is the problem, if the values of the past are the problem, then the task of culture uh, in the present is to get out from under those things, to repudiate them, to reject them. And, and Reef won't even dignify that by calling it a culture. He says, actually, it's an anti-culture. It's a rejection. It's a rejection of the past. It's essentially built on repudiation and that connects to the notion of death works because the other thing reef does he says you know when when you look at uh, what he would call the priests of culture typically the priests of culture they're the elite uh you know when, when you go to college you're taught by professors uh government policy is set by the elite people who are elected and operate in DC. Uh, The elites are responsible for culture. And typically, in the past, that's meant the elites are responsible for passing along the values of the past. Uh, Not anymore, Reef says, in the anti-culture. The the elites uh, invert their role, essentially. The role of the elites is actually to make ridiculous, to destroy, to shatter, to repudiate, to make absurd the values uh, uh, of the past. And they do that through this thing that brief calls death works. And death works typically are those things that kind of take the idiom of that which was considered to be valuable in earlier cultures and makes them ridiculous or disgusting. The example I use in the book, uh, forgive me for the slight crudity here, the example I use in the book is Andres Serrano's infamous uh, artwork, uh, Piss Christ, which is a crucifix submerged in a bottle of, uh, of Serrano's own urine. And uh, I think it was exhibited at the New York Metropolitan uh, Museum of Art or one of the, the very elite uh, New York venues for displaying art. Reef would, would look at that and with, say... With
1: government money, I think that was the issue too, that he got a grant. He or got a
0: government, government grant, which caused the the big explosion. But Reef would say that's a, that's a death work because that's taking something that... The previous culture considered to be sacred. Previous culture kind of built itself upon, you know, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is crucifixion, a very terrifying but holy moment, and you know, making it dirty and ridiculous. Uh, I think Reef's phrase is, you know, taking the sacramental and making it excremental, and that's a, a sophisticated example. But Reef would also say, you know, soap operas that that mock. The family that caricature the family that, that undermine the family that make parents into buffoons or bigots or make them look ridiculous. Uh, that's a death work, too. That's taking one of the institutions that has been important to the stability, the maintenance, and the, the replication of society over the years and making it ridiculous. Uh, yeah, more so-
1: yeah and sometimes they're not even aware. I read once that, that because in Brazil the soap operas, the telenovelas, I guess they were. That they often didn't. They showed rich people with no children, and that was supposed to have led to a, a noticeable drop in the birth rate there, that, because people associated, started to associate children with with poverty or with uh, poverty. And
0: and so. That that's a death work. It, there, you you're taking something that the previous culture thought was important, and not simply mod. I mean, all the you know, culture is always modifying culture. You know, generations change values as again, but you're not simply changing a value there. You're actually repudiating it, n- and not by argument, but by taste. You're, you're transforming public taste through these, these death works in such a way that the values of the previous culture are not simply modified or accommodated to new circumstances, but are actually repudiated as being disgusting, oppressive or ridiculous.
1: Yeah, there's some quote from Oscar Wilde, I think, about to render something uh, to get rid of some to reform is to render is to simply re- render something ridiculous or say or to say it's out of it's not fashionable. I think was the, was the quote. But um, uh, apropos of, of the, your your comments about the in, the importance of institutions that Yevol Levin writes has, has a new book about that and my reaction to it was kind of this is so touching that he thinks that they can still be resurrected. (laughs) I just wonder if that's so, because if if the pillars of these institutions, for example, I mean, I I don't like to give her the airtime, but Ocasio-Cortez seems to think that, well, Congress isn't really that it's it's just like this, this 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 hissy fit. If you don't pass my trillion dollar program, then you're you're a failure as an institution, and you have to jump to my tune. And you know, it's instead of saying I'm a freshman, I need to learn how this institution works, and it just it's just a, an end run around. But of course, maybe she's right. You know, maybe it is a a, a, st- a stodgy, archaic, no longer functioning, dysfunctional institution that does need fresh blood and all of that. And they, there's always that argument that they can always make, that we're actually, re- we're rejuvenating rather than destroying. I don't, do, do you buy that, any of that? Or?
0: It's, you know, it's, it's I mean, she's a, a popular hate figure on the right, yeah. of course. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I, I do think that there is, yeah, Certainly for guys of my generation, people of my generation, there's there's a certain value to we put on reserve. There's a certain value we put on uh, waiting in line, serving your time before you have authority. We've all behaved arrogantly in our time. Most of us haven't done it in Congress, though. Most of us have done it in fairly harmless environments. So my, my concern there would be, you know, Ocasio-Cortez, the... Uh, yeah. Maybe she's just being blown up by by conservative media into a particularly influential hate figure. Maybe she doesn't have that much influence. But there is a sense in which she does again kind of epitomize the sort of world that that reef anticipates and that expressive individualism points towards and that is a world that that prioritizes youth as wise because age is what makes you bigoted and screws you up
1: yeah. and
0: uh, a better example even what might be the the young teenage girl who's become the uh, poster child of the uh, the ecological movement. Oh, over Greta
1: Thunberg, I think.
0: Greta Thunberg, yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, on one level, uh, I, I'm not opposed to be, to caring about the environment at all. What interests me is that we, we've invested such authority in such a young person who, even if they're correct, doesn't really have the knowledge to know that they're correct, if I could put it that way. But again, that's a great example of the kind of anti-culture That's developed where wisdom, learning, that which we've inherited from the past to deploy in the present has become seen as as that's a burden or a disadvantage. What we need is people who are unspoiled by previous culture. To tell us and what's funny
1: is what's that really she's going usually it's kind of an appealing young person who's sweet and genuine but she's such a scold and here and here and she here she is addressing the United Nations this is this is the greatest platform probably one of the greatest platforms in the world and she's saying you're not listening to us I thought well are, aren't we you're <laughs> here you are in the in the in the, the the speaking to the United Nations and then and also she says, well, we need to we need to listen to science, but every but in the meanwhile, we're supposed to all the children should boycott. So that's how she became known was demanding that have a school boycott of children not refusing to go to school. I thought, well, that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it's it's it, and again, reef would look at that and say this is the you know, when culture dies, what replaces it? And there's a sense in which what we have at the moment is the negation all we've got is is people defining themselves really by what they are against at this point uh, mm-hmm. and, and and that leads to these kind of contradictions that you're pointing to
1: yeah and the fact that they feel disempowered when they're they're incredibly empowered I mean you, can, you oh. turn on the BBC and there she is and so forth. But one more thing about Reef is could you discuss his concept of the first, second and third worlds, especially apparently because we don't really have the first world anymore, do we? Or it's, it's basically the second and third that are in conflict.
0: Yeah, this is this is Reef's taxonomy of, of, of really of different kinds of societies. And there's a sense in which the taxonomy is a bit clean cut. Uh, any given culture is probably going to have a bit of a mix of all three, but there'll be one that's that's dominant. First worlds are uh, worlds in a, in a way like ancient Greece, and, and Reef would say that that the first world is is grounded in in a in in some kind of mythology. It's grounded in a view of fate, uh, and what that means is that when uh, when when it when a society frames its moral codes, it, it's looking beyond itself. As a basis for doing that. An ancient Sparta would be a good example. Uh, The legend in ancient Sparta was that the law code came from uh, the first king Lycurgus and Lycurgus received the law code from the Oracle at Delphi, who received it from the gods. Uh, Well, that means that, you know, if... If a child in ancient Sparta says, you know, Dad, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to go to this place when when the king tells us? The, the father can say, well, we do it because it's in the law, and the law came via Lycurgus and the oracle at Delphi from the gods, and therefore the law has a... A, an authority beyond our personal tastes beyond the way we want to organize society actually there's a there's a law to which we have to conform that's the first world second world is kind of like that but in a more sophisticated sort of form tends to be monotheistic for for reefs so we're really thinking of Judaism Islam and Christianity where you have law codes that are grounded in some kind of divine revelation you know. Why is, why is it wrong to kill? You might, you know, the young Jewish boy might ask a rabbi that or a young Christian boy might ask his minister that. Why is it wrong to kill? Well, you know, it's wrong to kill because the Ten Commandments say thou shalt not kill and the Ten Commandments were given by God to Moses and they actually reflect God's character and therefore uh, not killing is an important part of, uh, of reflecting God's character. Again, like with the first world, what you have is a, a social order Reif would say, a social order built on a sacred order. The social order justifies its values, its law codes by reference to something beyond itself. Third world is different. Reif says the third world is uh, a world where there is no transcendent. There is nothing beyond the world. And that means that cultures and cultural codes have to be justified on the basis of themselves. So, you know, young boy says to dad, why is it wrong for me to steal candy from the, 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 the candy store at the corner of the road? And dad says, uh, because the law of the land says so. And the lad says, well, where does the law of the land come from? And and dad says, well, it comes from people getting together and deciding that's a bad thing to do. And the lad says, well, so what? I I beg to differ here. I'd quite like to get that candy. And those people have no right to oppress me with their invented morality about about stealing. Reef says that third worlds uh, are inherently unstable because they have nothing beyond themselves by which to justify themselves. And he says, uh, and that means that morality will be in continual flux because morality will really default to whatever the tastes of the moment are. There'll be no stability there. And were he alive today, I think he'd look at the landscape and say, yeah, this is the kind of, this This is a third world. Uh, how do we frame, how do we, we talk about sexual morality today? well, consent it's the expressive individual notion that you know as long as as the people engaged in this activity are all consenting to it that's okay then uh so and reef would say and that means that there is no such thing then as a sort of transcendent sexual code uh, all you have are popular tastes
1: well that famous quote from the, around 1910 about I don't care what people do as long as they don't do it in the street and frighten the horses and all of that.
0: Yes, yeah. Uh, it, it's a kind of, or, or the Jefferson statement, as long as it neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg, applied to sort of morality as a whole, if you like, at that point.
1: Well, now that we've dealt with Reef, could you tell us a bit about another thinker that you talk about at length in the book and at, to profitable length for the reader how, how, uh, that's Charles Taylor and his theories, for example, the social imaginary and the politics of recognition, which help us understand, as you put it, why certain identities, e.g. LGBTQ+, enjoy great cachet today, while others, e.g. religious conservatives, are increasingly marginalized. And, and Taylor sort of predicted that this, or, or his categories help us understand why that's so.
0: Yeah. Taylor's very useful from, from this perspective, uh, Taylor's idea of the social imaginary gets to uh, a very important point, and, and, and that, that is that most of us, in fact, all of us, we, we live in the world the way we do because we imagine it to be a certain way. We don't work from first principles all the time. We, we, have a, a, we, we relate to the world intuitively or instinctively, if you like. And Taylor says it's important to realize that. So a lot of our attitudes are not shaped by profound moral thinking that we've reasoned from first principles, but are shaped by... The tastes of the world around us. That the you know a soap opera can can shape the way we imagine the world uh, and the significance of certain behaviors within that world uh, far more for most people than than reading a very heavy tome on things. Uh, you know, I would take gay marriage as an example. Why do most uh, you know why did gay marriage uh, come to be accepted in, in the end so quickly in America? I don't think it was because a lot of people sat down and read massive tomes of. Uh, sexual theory and identity theory uh, etc etc it's because uh, a program like will and grace presented a gay couple in a very attractive and and amenable kind of light it shaped the way people imagined the world if you like so taylor's very useful because he's he gets to the point that uh, and the point that i wanted to get to in the book is you know why do ordinary people think this way why do ordinary people think the statement, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, makes sense? Ordinary people have not sat in Judith Butler's gender theory class. Yeah. They're just ordinary people in the street. Well, they, they, they intuitively think it, it makes sense. Well, why? Because all kinds of things are going on in the culture that shape the way they imagine the world to be, and the way the world should be. So, the social imaginary was is Taylor's way of saying we need to we need to realize that most people don't think theoretically, even about the most important things in life. They think instinctively and intuitively in ways that society has shaped them to think. The politics. Well,
1: I think apropos of that I was just going to say in the Windsor case that I read once that that appeal that was very shrewdly chosen because it didn't seem fair. It was Americans have a very strong foundational belief in fairness and the fact that she had to pay an enormous estate tax when her partner died and a a heterosexual bereaved person would not pay that same amount that's just not fair and that 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 was crucial in the whole issue i guess
0: that's a good example because we we assume that fairness is a good thing, and it and it is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I and mean, one could expand it and say, you know, the language of love that was used in the uh, uh, the gay marriage debate. You know, love wins. Hashtag love wins. You know, who who. Who doesn't want love to win? Um, you know, and you know, I remember when when the day the the judgment was announced in Obigafale versus Hodges, a judgment that I happened to disagree with, but seeing the faces uh, of the happy gay couples on the steps of the, of the Supreme Court, you know, it was hard not to have your heart strings pulled at that. You know, who wants to stand in the way of, of other people's personal happiness? It's it's part of the way we we imagine. Our ethical imagination, you would like, if you like, uh, of the world. Uh, so, yeah, you're absolutely correct. Um, politics of recognition. One of the things that I was interested in trying to get at in the book was, you know, okay, uh, why is it not enough that uh, gay couples be allowed to get married? Why are we now in a situation where even to disagree with that? personally renders you a somewhat egregious person in society as a whole and taylor has this this interesting point he actually draws it really from the the german philosopher hegel Uh, taylor uh, sees and i think correctly sees human beings as you know there are two things that that we sort of we have We want. We want to be free. We 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 intuitively feel we're free, and we want to be free. So we want to be able to express ourselves in the way we choose. On the other hand, however, there's there's something else that we want that's not immediately compatible with that first drive or desire. That's we want to belong. It's one thing to be free. But we also want people to affirm us. We want to belong. We want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And that leads to this notion of, uh, that, that Taylor has of, of recognition. In other words, for me to be truly me, for me to be really fulfilled as a self, it's, it's actually not enough for me simply to, to act out my inner desires in public. I want you, Hope, to recognize me as a real person when I do that uh, you know in, in some ways it's we think of of teenagers are, you, know, you talk to the typical teenager about the way they dress and they'll probably tell you the way I dress it it's an expression of the inner me it's a statement about who I am but then you notice that every teenager dresses like every other teenager and you've been to us yeah it's an expression of who you are inside but it's also, the membership card of a club. You want to belong. You want to express yourself and you want to belong at the same time. Bring that up to the level of society where, you know, a gay couple get married and they go to a baking. Well, let's say they're, they're preparing to get married and they go to a, a cake shop, as we know has happened in, in, in a famous uh, Supreme Court case in the United States. They go to the cake shop and they say to the, uh, the baker, bake us a cake for our wedding. And the baker happens to be, let's say he's a he's a Southern Baptist, and he's got pretty strong opinions. It happens on gay marriage. He likes these guys. He's known them for many years, and he says to them, uh, "Look, uh, I can't bake you a cake because that would contravene my my religious convictions." Uh, but you know, Dave at, at the cake shop at the end of the road, he has no problem. He'll he'll bake you a cake, and and I'll bake you a cake for any other occasion. Now. A lot of conservative Christians would look at that and think, "Well, that the guy seems to, the baker seems to be offering a, a, a fair compromise here. Uh, he's 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 not deny he's not trying to make these men starve, but he's acting in accordance with his religious principles." For a conservative Christian, what seems to be going on here? It's a question of religious freedom. For the gay couple, though, it's a question of recognition. What the cake baker is actually saying by refusing to bake a cake for their wedding is. I don't recognize you for who you are. I'm denying your your personhood in a pretty serious way. And that's why the, these issues are so explosive, because on the one hand, you've got religious freedom, which is very important in, in, in the history of American culture. On the other hand, you've also got recognition and belonging at stake on the other side. Uh, and so Taylor's politics of recognition was helped me see why, you know, Tolerance is not enough. Uh, you can tolerate somebody by saying, well, I'm going to tolerate what you do, but I'm not going to approve it. And that means I'm not really going to recognize you as the person you think you are. Only equality. Only equality will give that, that full recognition, that full granting of dignity to the person that they are looking for. And, and so that's where the politics of recognition became very helpful. Uh, to me and I think well
1: well, I'd like I'd like to give a possible a real life application of that because in here in Oregon there was a similar case to Jack Phillips and Masterpiece Cake Shop that there was a a a, a small establishment called I think it was called Melissa's Sweet Cakes and a lesbian couple of course went in and demanded a cake and they the couple said politely we prefer not to do and so what happened was the Bureau of Labor the government came in and, and destroyed the business. They, they had, they were the fine of $180,000, which was a small, which is an exorbitant sum. And it was all, I think that part of the problem for me with the, the psychological affirmation of, of the whole LGBTQ, um, view is that it's so vindictive towards people that won't that won't provide that recognition it wasn't just that we're going to sue we're going to you're also the argument was we have been psychologically damaged it wasn't just discrimination it was that their argument was we have experienced psychological damage what fragile psyches do these two women have that they're, that they can't they can't that they're just shattered by the, the lack of a cake it just seemed like how does that make your community look strong and affirmative and powerful and self-assured if you're just collapse into into you know psychological fragility and damage from this this simple commercial transaction or lack thereof it just was bizarre and also the fact that you have to bankrupt the person. You can't just walk out in high dudgeon. You have to ensure that you've destroyed their livelihood, which is just amazing.
0: Yeah, it's extremely vindictive. But in some ways predictable within, within this kind of psychologized notion of the self, Uh you know, violence is psychological. It's verbal in, mm-hmm. in, in that sort of register, and so while I, I I don't agree with that at all, I could certainly see where it's coming from. And th- and this is the problem. This is why freedom of speech and freedom of religion are now under huge pressure because Christianity maintains certain sexual codes. Well, those sexual codes fly in the face of certain sexually constructed identities. So Christianity is seen as. As denying uh, certain kinds of people recognition, and and that is increasingly in society seen as a as a very serious thing, akin to racism, if you like. So mm. these are very troubling waters into which religious conservatives are moving at the at the current time. The psychologized well, that, that- self is is very fragile on that from that perspective.
1: Yeah. It's a very, it's a very brittle, brittle personality. Type yeah, I think yeah. that it's, it's, and it must be on edge. It must be hard to live like that, that I'm constantly aware of, I must constantly be aware of perceived slights and discriminations everywhere and under every, every circumstance. But, but this brings up the quote from about another thinker who you discuss Al- 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 Alistair McIntyre. And I'd like to read this quote, which is related to this, this issue about identity and so forth. And you say McIntyre, Al- Alistair McIntyre, again, El. Al- McIntyre is useful because in a series of books starting in the early 1980s, he has repeatedly argued that modern ethical discourse has broken down because it rests ultimately on incommensurable narratives and that claims to moral truth are really expressions of emotional preference. These insights are extremely helpful in understanding both the fruitless nature and extreme polarizing rhetoric of many of the great moral debates of our time, not least surrounding matters of sex and identity. And I'd like to ask... Um does the argument of Alexander McIntyre that claims to moral truth are really expressions of emotional preference make him kind of an outlier among natural law theorists for example wouldn't Robert P George take issue with the fact that that moral truth are just is just an emotional preference I mean that he would. George would argue that I would think that that they're moral truths that are rock solid and are not based on preference. That they that they can be found and discerned.
0: Yes, is, uh, is
1: McIntyre is he is he somewhat controversial with his own natural law community for that?
0: I'm I'm not familiar enough with the debates about McIntyre and the natural law community really to comment on that. But I think what what McIntyre is getting at is he's not sort of saying that uh, uh, you know. All of our claims are, are merely emotional preference. He's, he's making, in some ways, a more subtle point, and that is, unless we agree on, on the foundational narrative uh, of existence, unless we agree on the basic principles of, uh, of who we are and what the world is in which we live, then... Uh, we will find ourselves, first of all, unable to really have constructive conversations on things. So, for example, abortion would be a good example. Uh, if if we don't agree on what a human person is, then pro-life and pro-choice people are really talking past each other on that. If, the, if there's no agreement even on on the nature of human personhood, there can be no constructive engagement between the two sides on uh, uh, on The issue of abortion. Secondly, I think he's saying that for those really who deny any kind of meta narrative, any kind of foundation, then really what it comes down to is when they make a claim about right or wrong, they are making a statement about emotional preference. Somebody who has no meta narrative or has no metaphysics, has no natural, you know, idea of the natural law. When they say they're opposed to abortion, what they're really saying is they personally find abortion distasteful. Uh, so I, I think what McIntyre there, he, he's not quite. I don't think he's proposing an ethical theory so much as he's describing the landscape in which we find ourselves in the public square today, where really there's very little, to some extent, no agreements even on what the foundations of human existence are that we can then build our ethics on and have ethical discussions in light of.
1: Well, I think an example of that in terms of people having incredibly divergent worldviews and yet who do do discuss things and, and, and re, on, on scholarly levels and are actually f- could be friends and colleagues is, is I mentioned Robert George, but he, he's a friend of, of one of the other figures in your book, the philosopher, his, his Princeton colleague and fellow philosopher Peter Singer. And George repeatedly defends Singer's right to to express his views. So George finds finds his Singer's views on infanticide abhorrent. And could you tell us a little bit about Singer and his views on infanticide and abortion? And and, and is he an example of probably the leading example of expressive individual carried to its lo- logical conclusions? If he's saying that that well, he 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 just seems to me a fascinating figure in that He's so much—he's rather sinister compared to other people in your book, who, who you example, who say, argue, exemplify or, or pioneer the idea of expressive individualism, such as William Wordsworth and John Jacques Rousseau. Where yeah. does Peter? That's a strange—it seems a sort of strange trajectory from a solid, pretty decent human being of Wordsworth to. Some pretty sh- horrifying ideas <laughs> to your Singer yes.
0: has. Although there, there is an interesting connection between, we one could argue, between Rousseau and Singer, in that Rousseau had all five of his children taken pretty early in their lives to the local orphanage and left there, which was certainly a death sentence. Uh, mm. So one could actually, when one when, when looks at Singer, say, yeah, there's a certain, in, in the way Rousseau behaved, there's a certain Singer type logic there. Singer's view of, of, of abortion rests on a couple of things. One, uh, uh, he doesn't think that that uh, he he doesn't deny that life starts at conception. What he denies is that what is conceived is a person. Personhood only really begins to exist for singer uh, for children at the age of I think of about two years when children start to become more self-aware, become more intentional, develop a sort of concept of moving themselves into the future. Uh, Singer would say prior to that time they're not really persons and you know why would we accord why would we accord a newborn child that, that really lacks any developed sense of self-awareness any more right to life than we would grant a cow and we routinely kill cows that are more self-aware than the newborns we, we routinely kill them for the for the trivial reason that we want to eat them so Singer's view is that uh, the right to life, if you like, adheres to, to persons, and a baby is not a person until there's a, a developed sense of self-awareness, uh, which the other side of, uh, of his thinking then is so... Why? Why would abortion be a good thing, or why would even infanticide be a good thing? Well, yeah,
1: I always wonder why is he even arguing this. What's the purpose of this? Of
0: this? Well, his 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 view is uh, at this point he's he's quite a utilitarian, and he's very interested in 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 that I, I think rather difficult to quantify. Those utilitarians usually pretty confident they can quantify it this idea of the sort of the the gross amount of happiness and he would say you know a, a young couple that have uh uh they have a child and the child is born with severe disabilities and it becomes very clear to that couple that they're going to have to spend a lifetime looking after this child and the child is never really going to develop into what singer would think of as a person even child is going to be heavily dependent and that child's going to be a drag upon their happiness and therefore euthanizing the child might actually be the best thing to do Uh, not so much if you like to put the child out of its misery but to put the parent's out of misery, they'll be happier without the child than they are with the child. So at that point, uh, euthanizing the child becomes an okay move. Same with elderly dependent relatives who sort of lost their personhood through Alzheimer's disease. You know, if you're having to care for them and they're they're becoming a drag on your happiness, maybe it's better just to put them to sleep for good. They're no longer persons, so no person is being killed. They are just, you know, a heart pumping blood through a body at that point. So uh, I'll give Singer credit for this. Singer's a remarkably consistent thinker. It's why I read him with the students at Grove in one of the courses I teach, would say the great thing about Singer is he doesn't hesitate to draw i think you said the rather sinister conclusions from his his presuppositions in in a way that a lot of other thinkers on these issues they'll they'll be pro abortion but they'll pull back from the the obvious logical conclusions of their work i think on grounds of taste Singer doesn't do that. Singer is is a very consistent thinker, and if the child is going to be a drag on the happiness of the parents when first when he's first born, when that's clear, there is it is not murder to have that child euthanized at that point.
1: Well, speaking of getting from Singer to another equally controversial thinker, one figure I was surprised in your to find in your book, considering it's it's basically about uh, leftist politics, really, uh, or a lot of it is the is Friedrich nietzsche who mm. is usually associated with the right so he seems like an unlikely figure in in a book about the cultural left and could you tell us what role nietzsche plays in your book and in expressive individual generally sure expressive well, individualism
0: I should say yes uh, of course the cultural left only really come in with the the sort of 20th century when when the I'm trying to explain how the sexual revolution takes place so my interest was not so much in, in tracing out the history of the left as it was in tracing out the history and growth uh, and implications of expressive individualism Nietzsche is is a critical figure intellectually because he is the man who calls the bluff on the Enlightenment. Uh, in some ways, he sort of he's a bit of a sort of McIntyre figure. In some ways, in his work, The Gay Science, uh, he has this scene where a madman runs into a town square and confronts the atheists who are hanging around having polite conversations and says, "God is dead. You've killed him." And the atheists all laugh at him and shrug their shoulders. And the madman repeats, that. "He says, no, no, God is dead. You've killed him. And you need to realize the significance of that. Everything changes." What Nietzsche was really doing was getting at the polite. Enlightenment philosophers of his day and saying, you know, you want to get rid of God, but you want to keep the moral order that was built upon belief in God. Well, if you get rid of God, actually, that moral order ceases to have any authority. And that means that you must take up the challenge yourself of creating meaning. Meaning is not given to you anymore. You must create meaning. You must become a work of art, if you like. Uh, I, 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 I allude in the in the book to Oscar Wilde. I think Oscar Wilde was the kind of figure that Nietzsche would have had in mind. Wilde was the – he was a rebel against the sexual mores of his day. He was a dandy. He dressed the way he wanted. His whole life was a performance. Uh what Nietzsche does is, is he calls the bluff on the Enlightenment and says, you know, morality has no real foundation once you've got rid of God. Everything's up for grabs. That becomes very important in the twentieth century. It becomes important through even for gender theory. Uh, Judith Butler, who is the the great intellectual fountainhead of uh, gender theory, the one who really provides the the intellectual framework for the transgender moment, uh, Butler is very influenced by Nietzsche because what Nietzsche does is he shows that categories produced by society are really means of marginalizing. Categorizing, oppressing people, Uh, we can blow through those. So the category of man and woman, strictly tied to biology, those are categories used to keep women in 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 positions of subordination. So she uses Nietzsche. Nietzsche is often thought of as a philosopher of the right. I think he's actually today far more useful to the left because he's the guy who smashes through all of what one might call the traditional conservative categories of culture and says, no, these have no basis. These are pure conventions created by the middle class in order to keep others in positions of weakness. Uh, And that insight becomes incredibly important at the level of, of intellectual theory in the latter part of the 20th century. Butler is the key figure in my narrative, but the, the, the Frenchman Michel Foucault, uh, who is also an extremely important person in the, the dismantling of uh, the notion of traditional sexual codes. He's a big disciple of Nietzsche as well.
1: Yeah, apropos of student Judith Butler, I was at a social gathering recently and I asked a young woman who's studying to be a social worker what, what are some of the books she's reading. And she said, Judith Butler. And I thought, well, okay. I don't see how that's of immediate help to someone who's down and out and needs practical And it's assistance. very hard
0: but, to read as well. Judith Butler cannot write a clear English sentence. It's very difficult <laughs> stuff.
1: Well, apropos of clear English sentences, I, I we were discussing Nietzsche, and I, I looked, I, I worked my through every word of your book. It was wonderful. I even did the index. And one of the things that was amusing and, and telling was how what the entries are for God. And they include, uh, as implausible, increasing irrelevance of, uh, as unnecessary hypothesis, God is dead. I thought, well, that about sums up <laughs> yes. several centuries.
0: Captures the cultural but, pathologies of our day quite accurately, I think.
1: But one, one thing I wanted to ask about, too, is that uh, you make the point that conservatives, you know, because you're very respectful in the book of of the young people, and you don't dismiss them as snowflakes. And you, you're like, John, in fact, you're very compassionate towards them, and you're you're even more, I think, uh, a little bit more understanding of them than Jonathan Haidt, who argued really that conservatives were 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 or liberals actually. He makes the point the liberals didn't realize that these this, these were not they shouldn't be dismissed as snowflakes. They're really actually much more. Dangerous than that, because he, that as they say, they have carried their ideas into the workplace, and and and. But I wanted to ask: Do you see that the the recent elections of vaunted blue wave that didn't materialize? Do you think some of that might have been a reaction on the part of voters to you know we're not quite on board with the Democrats' identity politics, or do you think that was just? economic? Or do you think there was any social social meaning of that vote? Because it was a, quite a surprise to the Republicans themselves, as well as to the
0: Democrats. Yes. Yeah, there are interesting things going on in politics, both here and in my homeland, of course, with the Brexit vote. I think mm. what, what uh, a lot of the identity politics has done, particularly as the Democratic Party has has picked it up and made it a mainstay of their agenda, uh, it's really alienated a lot of the working class and, 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 and rural people who tend to be more conservative socially even when they might look towards more liberal economic kind of policies. So I think what we're seeing at the moment is an interesting realignment where the De- Democratic Party is really becoming the party of the the affluent liberal middle class and the Republican Party is you know is, is flipping to to become more of a populist working class. Uh, party, so very interesting. I, I, but I do think uh, what you say is true. The interesting hints, not just in terms of the national picture with the when the blue wave didn't um, materialize, but also California uh, on the election day also rejected some some interesting kind of. Left-wing identity politics sort of policies in California. Now, now that's surprising. You know, you'd have thought that that would have been meat and drink to certainly the California as it's portrayed in the media. So these are interesting times. I mean, I'm a historian. I I, I find it hard to predict what's going to. I mean, I never predicted Donald Trump, for example. So it's hard to predict what's going to happen in the future. But all I would say is that, yeah, it's it's not obvious that that identity politics is going to sweep the board in the way that one might have anticipated what that means for the united states as a unity i don't know i mean it could go numerous ways but it does seem to me that uh what we're seeing is is a polarization on the issue of identity politics that could could put serious strain on the union or or maybe their democratic institutions are strong enough and our leaders become ultimately mature enough and sensible enough to be able to to handle it. I, I hope that uh, what appears to be President-elect Biden's rhetoric about bringing the country back together, I hope that's more than just empty talk by a victor I hope that does translate itself into some some attempts to to listen to to those who didn't vote for him and who have strong feelings uh, uh, and translate into some kind of attempt to find that that old middle ground way forward
1: well it's interesting he's fighting is he's fighting the left on his own yeah. party so we'll see how much maneuvering room he. yeah had. I wanted to ask on on that respect that do you think that do you think that the Antifa riots and so forth and and will will calm down, or do you think they'll just continue? Is and are they in a weird way an expression of expressive individualism? And do you think that expressive individualism will ally with woke capitalism, or will, will expressive individual ally with woke capitalism to try to squeeze out Antifa, or will they all work together to defeat what's left of what what used to be normal American society, or is or is it or Antifa fade away or, or it- there wasn't a fascinating thing in Portland that in Portland about a month ago that the black lives matter was trying, was actually, they had to call in the police to control unrest between Antifa and black lives matter because Antifa was smashing shops and the black lives matter. People said, well, it doesn't make us look good. And that's not our agenda. And it was, they were turning the police to, to control it. it yeah. Funny.
0: I mean, it, it is historically the case that, that, that violent revolutionary movements tend to turn in on themselves, uh, partly I think, I mean Nietzsche would say it's that's because violence brings a feeling of ecstasy and power so whether they fade away I don't know, I mean looking at some of the faces on the rioters over something, you could see the joy and delight, it was, it, it was fun that's why some of those riots were taking place, people were enjoying what they were doing, um, I'm not familiar enough with the the dynamics of the, of the far left in America and how these different groups relate to each other to know if they'll fade away or not I'm sure the violence would have been worse if president President Trump had won. I I don't think people, my son lives in DC, I don't think people were boarding up their shops because they were worried about Trump supporters trashing the joints. I think they were worried about Trump winning and and those who are upset going, uh, some of them going on the rampage. So, what will happen under a Biden presidency relative to the the antics of the far left, uh, I don't know. But clearly, Uh, Their vision of America uh, and what I would say is the the vision of the vast majority of people, center left and center right, would be vastly different.
1: Well, I wonder. I know that you're. I have only so much more time with you because I know you're busy. But I did want to ask if you could tell us about the Yogyakarta principles. Am I pronouncing that correctly?
0: Yogyakarta. Yeah, these are the principles put together by uh, a a group that met. in the Indonesian city of Yogyakarta, there've been two recensions of it. These are they, they have no formal status. It, it wasn't yeah, the united. I it was that they're self-appointed
1: non, non-governmental organizations that are they're saying we are now basically a governing entity with no authority or no democratic mandate whatsoever, and yet they present these principles. As if they're they're written in stone and that they're somehow the voice of the people, I thought that was
0: fascinating. Yeah, and 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 they have been these principles, as you say, were put together by a self-appointed group, but have been adopted by numerous countries, you know, governments around the world in in, in a more formal sense. Uh, the Yogicata Principles essentially set forward uh, a series of. Uh, uh, proposals uh, concerning human rights relative to specifically uh, to the issues of sexual orientation and gender identity. So these principles have become very important as foundational document when different countries have started to formulate uh, legal uh, laws, have started to to formulate laws relative to LGBTQ+. Kind of issues in legislation. What are the the basic rights that LGBTQ plus people should be granted uh, under law in different nations? So that you can find them online. Uh, as I say, the, the, there was one set, and then they were expanded a little bit later. But they outline essentially uh, what uh, what the demands we might say the the international demands relative to human rights are of the the LGBTQ plus movement.
1: Well, that's very helpful just to keep an eye on that so people know that it's spelled with a Y at the beginning. Yeah. Um, well, there's so much in this, another, there's so many thinkers in your book that we didn't get to, all. but one of them I, I don't want to ignore Sigmund Freud because he's key. And I think one thing that was interesting in your book is that not only is, are, his, are, his, are his ideas about his obsession with sex important, but also his his anti his belief is is disdain for religion. Both of them. I mean, he's kind of a classic campus liberal in a way, even though he didn't have a, uh, an academic position.
0: Yeah, Freud's very important for my story, and I'm very in some ways, I'm very appreciative of some of Freud's insights, particularly in his sort of philosophy of culture. Uh, Freud, in his what I think is probably his greatest work, little monograph slash essay "Civilization Its Discontents," argues that uh, at root the human beings we're driven by uh, dark desires: desire to destroy, a desire for sex. Uh, but the problem is, if we if we just let rip on those things, if we just act according to our instincts, then we have total chaos. You have the war of all against all, and, and you have a situation where you'll have one dominant male who'll then be replaced by another dominant male, et cetera, et cetera. So Freud Freud's idea is that that civilization, living together in an organized community, involves a trade-off. Uh we we agree to discipline ourselves relative to certain behaviors, particularly sexual behaviors. Uh, and the, the the price we pay is that we we never we're never fully satisfied because what we really want is to satisfy our sexual desires. So we'll always be somewhat discontented. But we do live longer and happier lives in in general, if you can put it that way. Uh, and that's sort of Freud's basic theory of, of, of civilization. The key thing, there are a couple of key things that flow from that, one of which is Freud makes sexual desire fundamental to who we are. And, you know, expressive individualism, as I said earlier, is that, you know, the voice of nature within you, being able to act out the voice of nature. But the voice of nature within you is, is who you fundamentally are. And Freud says, yeah, and that voice of nature is fundamentally sexual. And that's an incredibly important move because that means that sex is no longer something you do. It's something that defines who you are. And that's the the the, the basis, one of the, the bases for Sexual identity. When you think about it, it's, it's interesting that we talk about sexual identity now. That's assuming that, that sex is fundamental to our identity, and that's not always been the case. Uh, for a lot of human history, people thought sex was just behavior. People may have engaged in, preferred to engage in different kinds of it, but it was just behavior. It wasn't fundamental to who you are. So sexual identity is, is, is a fruit of, of this thing you've brought. Secondly, what Freud does there is he highlights the importance of sexual codes for the nature of culture. And when you think today about how many of the battles we're having in, in the so-called culture wars relate to, matters of sexual desire and sexual expression. Freud would say that's inevitable because culture is defined by its sexual codes, but it also puts us in a rather dangerous position because if we end up allowing pretty much everything, then we stand on the verge of total chaos at that point. So Freud, I found, a very interesting and helpful figure. He's central to the narrative in terms of sex becomes identity. But he's also interesting for giving uh, that lens through which we can understand sexual taboos as actually constitutive of culture and society, which means that when we start to change them or abandon them or reduce the number of them, we're changing the very nature of society itself in a very, very deep and significant way.
1: That's interesting, too, that his ideas are uh, something he's he's not a favorite of the feminist left because of the sexism and misogyny. But yeah, yeah. but, but he's still he's still there he's still standing.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah.
1: One, one of the um, I know that uh, I, I just want to, one or two more questions. So I just want to tell readers that one of the strengths of your book is that you you simply quote from many of the writings of the of the figures that you profile, and there's some absolutely chilling passages on on Herbert from your, by Herbert Marcuse about why he seemed quite comfortable with the idea of crushing. Any dissent from the leftist agenda, which is really worth reading to understand. I wonder if is he still a figure of note um, by the left? he just another
0: dead white male to them? I, I suspect for many he's a dead white male, if they've heard of him. I think the significance right. of Marcuse is that the, the the ideas and the logic, the cultural logic that he espoused has become a routine part of, uh, of of new left thinking. So is Marcuse widely read today by the left? I suspect not, but one can certainly find clear parallels between the way he thinks, for example, about freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is simply a way of allowing open Presses to peddle their oppression uh, and 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 get legal protection and cover for so doing. That lies behind. Um uh, a lot of what's going on on college campuses these days, where students uh, are saying, you know, freedom of speech. No, actually, that's an evil. That just allows oppressors and racists, etc., to 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 ex- to espouse their bigotry and do their psychological harm. So, Marcuse himself may have passed from the scene as a living figure, but you know, a, a, like other figures like Freud and like Marx, many of his insights have been absorbed into the common currency, the common thinking of those who may never have heard of him, but boy, they live in the world that that he shaped and, and whose values he forged.
1: Well, well apropos of the, 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 the world we're living in, I won't give away your proposed historical anal- analog to what is is a very sobering conclusion to the book. And I don't want to say it's a downer, but it's a very serious and thought-provoking Reading of where, where where social conservatives of many of Christians or not are. And it has to do with the early church. Would you like to discuss the conclusion or would you leave it to readers to find out? No, I'm
0: happy to, to, to mention that. I, you know, I'm a historian, so I'm always wanting to think of uh, are there analogs. Are there other periods in history that, that give some insight into the way forward at this point? And I'm also a Christian. So although the book itself is, isn't particularly Christian throughout, it's just, it's historical and analytical in the last chapter, I want to offer some thoughts as to, as to how the church might approach things. And you know, typically Protestants look to the Reformation as the glory days. Uh, Catholics may look to the medieval period. I don't think either the Reformation or the medieval period really fit with the situation in which the church finds itself in today. I think it's the second century. In the second century, the church was on the margins of society. It was suspect because it was seditious. Hey, they say Jesus is Lord. How does that correlate with Caesar as Lord? Uh, it was seen as uh, as immoral. Wow, that husband and wife—they call each other brother and sister. That sounds horribly incestuous. Oh, and by the way, they eat body eat bodies and drink blood when they get together to worship. So the the, the church was seen as seditious and immoral and highly distasteful. Uh, and uh, and that's pretty much where the church is today. Uh, you know, oppose gay marriage—that's an immoral stance. Um, oppose. Uh, Uh, Homosexuality—that's distasteful. Uh, 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 Gather together in your church, and you know you start to look—you know—sort of seditious these days. Where where do your loyalties really lie? Is it to the common good, the common inclusive good, or is it to your religion? So I think that there's a, a reasonable analog with the second century. And what interests me is how Christians reacted to that in the second century, and. Typically, it it wasn't culture war. They weren't trying to to seize Rome for Christ kind of thing. We have these writers, the Greek apologists, and the burden of, of their writings relative to the Roman Empire was essentially leave us alone and we'll be good citizens we'll be the best workers we will work for the common good there are some things we can't do if you demand that we sacrifice to caesar we can't go there because that would be a betrayal of our religious principles a betrayal of our god but within you know within those bounds we will not fight you tooth and nail. We'll be good citizens. We'll be the best servants you have. We'll be the best grocers you have. We'll be the best friends you have. And I think the, the challenge for the church today is to resist the knee-jerk attempt to, to adopt the, the culture war idiom that's, that's deeply ingrained in a lot of the Christian right in America and to realize, no, it's time for a change of gear. It's time to reflect on what good citizenship looks like in a time when the church is marginalized and and considered somewhat suspect. And I think that probably also requires that we meet, need to start thinking more locally than nationally. You know, I can't persuade Washington that I'm not a danger to the common good, but I can persuade my neighbor of that if I'm a good mm. member of the local community, if I help him change his tire when he's got a burst tire, if I inquire after his kids and show interest in him, if I take him food when, you know his, his uh, oven's broken down or something. So I, I think we really need, uh, in some ways, uh, a simple, but perhaps a deceptively simple uh, response uh, at this point in time. And that's, let's think about the second century, and let's think about what good citizenship means for Christians at a time when, when we're marginalised or going to be marginalised and when we're under suspicion of a lot of those who hold the levers of cultural and political power.
1: So you're not quite as extreme as well. Not I wouldn't say extreme, but you don't buy into Rod Dreher, who otherwise admires <laughs> your book, and he wrote a very, very um, complimentary introduction. But you don't necessarily agree with the Benedict op- option. I,
0: I, I, the Benedict option is, in some ways, uh, her, I think Rod and I are closer than some of the people who've interpreted Rod would think. A lot of people, yeah, you know, the title Benedict Option was a brilliant selling point. It's a very catchy title. It carries with it strong monastic connotations that I actually don't think Rod is always pushing for in the book. And the book goes a, a little bit of in different directions at points, but but I think Rod would, would actually say, yeah, this this being a good member of your local community, being a worshipping community within the local community, is is consistent with, with the Benedict option. So uh, I've, I've, I've spoken to Rod about this a couple of times, and I don't think there's a huge distance between us, actually, on this one.
1: Hmm. Well, I was just thinking when you were speaking about the idea that some ideas are, strike Christian Christian practices and beliefs strike other people's odds. I was just thinking of, again, Amy Comey, Coney Barrett's confirmation hearings, I think it was Ben Sass of Nebraska, who was saying, well, you know what, Some some ideas of Christianity do seem weird to other people, but you know what? They're held by millions of people around the world. That was a bit of public education on his part. Well, Carl, I've taken up a lot of your time. I'd like to ask you now the traditional final question on the new books network. And that is, what are you working on now?
0: Well, I'm actually working on an abbreviation of this book, would you believe? Uh, The first week of sales was so successful that my uh, publisher dropped me a note and said, we want to offer you a contract for a 150-page book that people will actually read. I mean, this is 400 pages. It's a lot to get through, but they want a book that ordinary people will have time to read, that staffers in DC can be given and expected to read, that pastors can be expected to read. So my next project is to to try to boil this down to a, a manageable footnoteless form that will give the gist of the argument to uh, to people who don't, simply don't have time to read a 400-page book.
1: Well, I, I think that's a brilliant idea, and I kudos to your marketing people at Crossway, because it's a good idea to have it just as a manageable, easy, easy, easy to digestible stocking stuffer kind of form and I, I also wanted to to just say to to listeners that there are quite a number of lectures or lectures that you gave recently on a whole series of of for grove city College. your institute could you tell me the name of your institution yeah grove city love-
0: college if you go to G- gcc.edu and look up the great lectures from the grove series you'll find not just me i think there are other faculty that have done this as well but i did eight lectures that that they're not. They don't track exactly with the book uh, in terms of order, but basically give the the central argument of the book um, in in a uh, an easily manageable lecture form.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to those. I I put put them off because I was finishing your book, so I was having me- media overload. <laughs> I have only two eyes, and so, but I wanted to say with that, I will just thank, also I want to say that there are lectures, uh, interviews with you in podcast form on other podcasts about the book, so I urge people to just um, Google your name and and the name of the book, which is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individual and the Road to Sexual Revolution, Expressive Individualism and the Road to Sexual Revolution. And with that, I would just thank the scholar we've been talking to, Carl Truman, author of that book. And thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.